Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We have a lot of awesome information headed your way. We have an interview with Field Seats. They do firearm reviews and then give away the item that's being reviewed, whether that be a rifle, pistol, or an optic. Then after that, we have Prep Medic. And we talk about some of the crazy experiences he's had as being a first responder. But before that, we got a couple awesome articles on PopsmokeMedia.com. First up, there was a man in New Orleans who had been tired of having his vehicle broken into seven times, in fact. So he rigged his truck with a flashbang. The would-be criminal got a face full of light, and the owner of the vehicle got a stern warning from the police not to do it again. To see the full video, check that out on our website. This month's featured op-ed is from one of our contributing writers. She is an airman turned actress, and she describes why military uniforms are so usually jacked up in TV, commercials, and movies. So sit back and enjoy your time with us here in the Smoke Pit. Welcome to the Smoke Pit, everyone. So if you're like me, uh, you do extensive research before you purchase a firearm. However, that does require sorting through endless self-proclaimed gun experts. And I often find myself asking, you know, was this an honest review or were they just echoing something that they heard another uh, person in the industry say? Well, when I was at SHOT Show, I began uh, talking to a new gun review company called Field Seats. And what makes them different is they give away the gun that they are reviewing to one lucky customer. So we figured out we, we'd reach out to them and invite uh, Matt from Field Seats to come on the show. How are you doing today, Matt? Doing well. Thanks for having me. So from uh, what I understand, you guys went through painstaking process of making sure that everything was legally compliant and you guys are licensed dealers and uh, whoever wins the review, you guys send the, the, the weapon or the optic or whatever it may be to like an FFL or something of their choice? So I'm a federally licensed uh, FFL dealer. And uh, for those who win the firearm from us, we just ship it to an FFL in their area. If they have one in mind, great. If not, I'll find one and then uh, they'll do the transfer for them. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And uh, so from my understanding is that uh, the reviews are actually something that you purchase and it's a limited seating. And at the end of the review, you guys have an automated computer process that you, you punch everyone's info into and they select the winner. So what it kind of seems like is that with each ticket, you're entering for a chance to, to win the, the firearm. However, if you don't win, then at the very least, you, know, you had an opportunity to and you get information about the, the weapon or the optic that you can use to help shape uh, your decision for a future purchase. Yeah, that's right. So each review is limited to, uh, you know, a small number of seats. If it's, you know, some are 30, some are 40, and we try to keep it within that number range. And uh, which each uh, field review purchase, you're automatically entered into our promotion to win that firearm. And like you said, uh, if you don't win, you're getting an honest review at least. And we try to keep it uh, small so that everyone at least has a decent shot at winning that firearm. Yeah, and um, you and your uh, your partners there, field seats. You got you got some pretty extensive um, experience with firearms and, and tactics and, and using the the things that you have. Uh, uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, I started this company with my brother. Um, we both served in the Marine Corps Infantry uh, at separate times, but we were both O three elevens. And then after the military, I went and became a cop. Uh, I was a cop in Chicago for eight years and then uh, I quit to start this company. So firearms have been a part of my life and something I've been uh, passionate about for four years now. Uh, coming up, I'm 
about 15 years for me. And like I said, my brother, uh, he's right behind me. He's a little younger than me, but we've been shooting and uh, reading and just living guns for a long time now. Yeah, so when did you uh, decide that you were going to turn your, uh, your love of shooting uh, and using uh, weapons for, you know, target practice or tactical applications to more of the instructional side where you wanted it to, uh, to do reviews and you know, help people kind of make decisions as to where they should go, depending on what they're looking for. You know, I got a lot of friends who aren't uh, military or law enforcement and even guys who are um, with those backgrounds. Not everyone's as passionate or, you know, as read up on uh, firearms as me or many others. So I just wanted to kind of share that knowledge with uh, friends and family. And then especially after the, the pandemic and everything and firearm sales uh, screaming up, I was getting calls left and right and, and decided to uh, make a business out of this. Well, the, that is the American dream after all. For sure. Definitely. And so being a, uh, a cop in uh, Chicago must have been a, a very unique experience. Yeah, you could say that for sure. Uh, a lot of, uh, you know, good days, bad days. Met some lifelong friends. Um, you know, you can kind of guess what it was like to to be a law enforcement officer in that city. Yeah, for sure. Um, how do you feel that the uh, the camaraderie or the uh, the brotherhood, if you will, uh, what where do you think there's the similarities and where do you think there's differences between being like an O three eleven and then being a, a police officer in in such a big city? There's definitely uh, similarities and differences. Um, you know, you're working with the same guys or a group of guys day in and day out. I was on like a tactical gang team um, for most of my time as a cop. So working with the same dude, same team every, every day, which is a lot like being with your squad or fire team. Um, you know, you become really close to these guys and, uh, you know, go to each other's family, barbecues, birthday, kids' birthdays, stuff like that. And there's definitely similarities in that aspect. Uh, the difference is you get to go home every night, which I appreciated, you know, you're not, uh, in the field for weeks at a time or on deployment for, you know, eight, nine months at a time. So going home every night definitely uh, was a good way to kind of break it up and, and make a big difference. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so how, how do you think that it, uh, it, it differed in both uh, maybe a positive or a negative way? You know, there's a lot of guys who are uh, committed in the Marine Corps, but you know how it is being in the infantry. Um, you know, you're in your early 20s and some guys just don't give a fuck or whatever the case is. And uh, as a cop, especially like the, you know, being on a tag team like I was, you know, everyone's pretty committed to uh, to their job, to their craft and to, uh, you know, bettering themselves every day. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen in the Marine Corps. But uh, just, yeah, it was just a different vibe, I guess. You're more working for yourself than working for someone else, if that makes sense. I get that. Um, with the, the Marine Corps, you, you have a contract, so you have to be there. And so, you know, you have the guys and gals that they realize that this wasn't for them, but they still have to stick around until the end of the day. But I, I can imagine when you're, uh, you're working in a law enforcement uh, environment where you can put in a two weeks notice or you can, you know, just turn in your uh, your gun and badge maybe not quite as uh dramatically as detective uh, jake peralta would like to do on brooklyn 99 you can't just slam it down on the desk you have to go t uh, fill out a form and <laughs> see the, uh, a lot of the, people the custodian <laughs> yeah but yeah I, I no, can it's imagine. definitely different in that way and uh not that you know 
Marines aren't uh, committed to their job. You know, I remember every deployment I did, everyone's, you know, locked in and, and ready to go. It's just, you know, when you're stateside more, you might not really give a fuck about the next training evolution as much as, uh, like you said, being a cop, it's kind of, that's your life. That's your livelihood. That's your career. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, tell us a little bit about your deployments. Uh, where and when did you go? I uh, went to Iraq in 2009, um, and then I did a MU after that in 2011. So the 31st MU after that, just Southeast Asia, the usual suspects, Thailand, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, all those countries, Oki for a bit. Um, what was yeah, your favorite out of those groups? Out of those countries? Yeah, because I, I, uh, I haven't been to most of those places. I've, I've kind of been nearly everywhere else but Southeast Asia. Thailand's really cool. I've gone a few times since uh, since the Marine Corps. Uh, big fan of that country. Uh, people are super friendly. It's, it's cheap. There's a lot to do. Um, Bangkok is like the big city, and that's a lot of fun. And then there's like a lot of uh, smaller beach communities further south. And uh, yeah, big fan of Thailand for sure. Right on. How was Singapore? Really cool. Um, super modern, super clean. Uh, just, it was, uh, you know, being in the 21, I was like 21, 22, Lance Corporal or Corporal. It was, I was a Corporal then. But, uh, you know, not making the big bucks. And it's an expensive city, especially compared to the rest of the countries we had uh, gone to just before that. Yeah, that was probably more where you probably got more uh, value out of your, um, your shoes than you did anywhere else, just walking around, seeing the sights. 100% that's what, that's what it was that. So I, I never went on a Mew. Um, can you tell me kind of a, a little bit about the difference of what the mentality or what the vibe is different from like when you're on a combat deployment versus when you're uh, out on a Mew? Yeah, I mean, combat deployments, as you know, it's you're locked in every day. Um, you know, you got your, like your four days patrol, four days QRF, four days, you know, FOB security, whatever the case may be, whatever your unit's doing. So it's kind of the same thing every day. And you get into a rhythm and you're really locked in. I remember being like super fucking locked in on that deployment and just like, you know. Um, Jesus Christ, four four days of those things would have been a dream for whatever reason. My platoon had a wild hair up its ass. It was like you had a four hour patrol block. You were on post for four hours and then you had four uh, hours to sleep slash QRF. I guess our platoon sergeant. Well, we, you know, what was cool about my, my deployment to Iraq was our company had its fob and then our platoon was pushed out on its own cops. So, uh, we were just by ourselves with our platoon, you know, platoon commander, platoon sergeant. So maybe they just took care of us a little better, but yeah, it was pretty nice being on that schedule. Um, and then you is just, it's so different, man. Like every day is different, especially when you're on ship underway, you know, uh, there's not much you can do as a Marine grunt on a Navy ship, obviously, but you know, your, your unit leaders are still trying to, you know, work on small unit tactics, whatever the case may be, the next training evolution that you're doing in whatever country with whatever uh, uh, partner uh, allies you're working with. So um, ship life was different for sure in that aspect and uh, just doing something different every time, every day. Yeah, that makes sense. Did I, uh, did I just hear a little Discord uh, server noise pop hey, off? Yeah, you did. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, no worries. It's actually a, a perfect opportunity for us to shamelessly plug our Discord. Uh, if you go to our uh, Instagram account and then look at our highlights, you can see the uh, the permalink to our Discord server on there. We're growing every day. It's kind of funny because I, I recognize that and I was like, oh, 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 I know what that is. 
I'm going to uh, be joining your Discord after this conversation. I got it pulled up. Ah, I got another one. See, shameless plugged already worked. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know the the veteran community is is fairly hard to pitch to. What misconceptions uh, do you think people might have about your business, or what value do you think that you're bringing that people may not necessarily have considered at first? For sure, definitely misconceptions. I think a lot of people when they hear like sweepstakes or you can win this, they think like the chances are so small. Um, you know, I'm not actually going to win. Uh, you're just taking my money, blah, blah, you know, things like that, which is a totally normal reaction to have. Like I get those emails from Gunbroker all the time for these sweepstakes. I don't enter them because I know my chances are small. What sets us apart is that each field review is limited. And you can see on each field review, if you click like the Glock 17 Gen 5 field review, if you click the Daniel Defense M4 field review, at the very top in bold, it says how many seats are available for that field review. So yeah. you know what you have going into it. And then uh, what value do we add? I'm, uh, you know, being as into firearms as I am, it, it gets really, really expensive, especially with the cost of ammo now, the cost of everything now. The cost um, of gas to drive to the range. Yeah, all that. So well, the value we provide is, you know, you can win a really nice, solid work gun from us. That's, you know, something you can carry every day that you can take to the range, that you can beat up, that you can, you know, be proud of, like a real firearm that you can, you know, keep for life. And, you know, for a $50 ticket, for a $25 ticket, you're, you're getting a review on it and you're entering a chance to, to win it for yourself. So that's the value that we bring, you know, um, just saving saving guys money and, and providing them with hardware that, uh, you know, everyone could enjoy and would want in their collection. Yeah. So these guns that you're uh, that you're giving away after you review them, they're brand new, right? Yeah, everything's brand new um, straight from the factory. That's pretty cool that uh, you're, you're able to kind of hook that up. I mean, yeah, that's that's what we, you know, I don't want to provide like used guns or, or stuff that's beat up to guys. I want to provide um, value, the stuff that I would want to carry or that I would want to own in my collection. Oh, no for one sure. Wants, no one wants a used gun, right? Yeah, I went to one of those um, broker gun websites and bought uh, one of those M17s. The uh, what, what is that? The the new six hour hotness that the army got the big contract for. Yeah. Because I was like, you know, if, if, if that's the, um, you know, the army, because I got the, the Glock 19X, that's pretty much what I carry daily. And, uh, you know, that's a fantastic gun, but that was the, the runner up. So I wanted to see what like the hotness was, you know, what, what the, uh, got the contract. So when I bought it, it said it was brand new, but when it showed up, like there was brass shavings and carbon and I could tell like it probably had 500, you know, plus rounds put through it and nobody in customer uh, service or anything like that got back to me so it's a it's definitely a good reassurance to know that you guys are doing straight from the factory brand new and, and you'll see on the review when i'm you know i do a, a, a physical virtual live review and there's a link available uh if you can't live stream it if you pay for it um and you'll see that you know i'm opening it out of the case that it's you know there's no carbon uh there's no nastiness like that in there um and we'll be doing, you know, short videos or, or pictures of, of the guns that we have up to, to just show that, you know, everything is brand new. We're not trying to do anything uh, shady like that. Gunbroker yeah, is sure. definitely known for stuff like that. I'm not a fan of that site. Yeah. And uh, seeing as you guys are licensed uh, gun dealers, it's like you kind of have to do everything like, you know, uh, uh, I mean, obviously you'd want to, but, you know, you have the, the, the additional kind of like, I guess you could say fiduciary, if you will, uh, requirement that. You know, you have to do everything uh, uh, above board because you know that's 
that's your livelihood. So you can't be messing with that. Yeah. I mean, we're an FFL dealer. Like I'm a federally uh, licensed firearms dealer that's regulated by the ATF, like any other FFL dealer. And I got a, you know, um, responsibility to, to them and to uh, my customers to keep everything on the up and up. And, you know, definitely uh, something that we hope to always provide is, you know, great customer service to, to anyone. So if you got a question, um, you know, you can contact us on our website. We have a contact us page or tab and click that. Give me a call, shoot me an email. And I'm always happy to answer anyone's questions. Yeah, for sure. And I was looking at your website and it, it looks real nice and clean. And there's a, uh, there's a ton of, uh, of uh, great uh, reviews on there that you guys are, are getting ready to do. Like you said, um, the, the one that I personally uh, purchased a ticket for recently was the, uh, the gen five, uh, Glock 17, like that thing looks nice. Yeah. I mean, gen, that's the newest generation Glock. Uh, Glocks are great firearms. You know, you carry a 19, so you understand. Um, that's, you know, that's the gun I suggest to all my friends and family when they're trying to get into guns or looking for a new pistol or whatever, just cause you can rely on it. You can beat the hell out of it. And I think all of our field reviews kind of reflect that uh, mantra or, or uh, whatever you want to call it. It's kind of our, our company uh, policies to provide firearms that you can rely on. You can beat the fuck out of and uh, that aren't going to fail you. Cause that's what you, you need in a real life, you know, uh, scenario. Yeah. For the, for the longest time I had a, a Glock 23 and that was my everyday carry. And that was a gen four. And it was, you know, like you said, great workhorse lasted forever. I've had it for five or six years now. And, um, you know, I, I saw the, the 19 X one day in a gun shop and I was like, mm, that already comes with the night sights that already comes with the, the nice, uh, coyote patina, if you will. And, uh, so I got that, but I, I, I haven't really had a chance to, to play with, uh, the other gen fives and, and see kind of what the differences are. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely subtle differences or uh, some major ones, too. Um, and we'll definitely go over all that in the field review, which is, you know, a good part of, of purchasing a field review is I'm going to give you my honest opinion on these firearms and uh, and what uh, what what I like about them, what I don't like about them. And and then, like always, you'll uh, have a chance to win that firearm and a decent chance at that. Well, we definitely uh, look forward to that. And uh, as I as I have mentioned on our, our website, if, if I am the one who wins it, just in the interest of fairness, I'll you know I'll donate it to like a VSO or something. I just thought it was a super cool concept, and I you know I want people to know about it because you know there are other similar contests out there, and you know like you said, like uh, uh, there have huge seatings, and you know the tickets are way more expensive, and I. I've seen uh, other uh, giveaways and stuff that were, you know, it's like a hundred dollars and there's a thousand people. And so you're like, man, like, you know, they, they bought this rifle for a thousand dollars and then, you know, they, they sell all those seats. They're making 10 grand off of it. And it's just kind of like, you know, it, it just, like you said, it was very discouraging. So like going to your, your guy's website, seeing that the, that the tickets or for the reviews were you know, very reasonable and that the seating was very limited. You know, I thought that it was, uh, you know, pretty much a better way to do business. Yeah, I mean, and it's a new or, uh, you know, not many people know this business model. Um, and so they're kind of skeptical of that. And we're just trying to provide, uh, you know, uh, transparency for, for our customers and for anyone who's interested in this. And uh, we appreciate you uh, having us on to, to kind of explain uh, what we provide to the gun community, the veteran community, and to, uh, you know, ex- just explain our business. You know, I'm excited to get started and uh, I'm hoping to get as many reviews out as, as I can and, and keep it rolling. 
Yeah, for sure. So where can people find you on uh, social media and your website? Um, so our website is uh, fieldseats.com. Um, and that's where all of our field reviews are and everything else. And uh, on Instagram, we're field underscore seats, uh, Twitter field underscore seats. That's uh, our social media right now. Probably be looking to, to make a Reddit uh, community here in a, in a short little bit, but uh, that's where you can find us for now. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much. Do you have any parting thoughts for our listeners before we head out? Just keep training. Don't stop. And uh, looking forward to, to getting some field reviews out for you guys and uh, pushing out some, uh, some winners. All right. Thanks, everyone. Uh, make sure you go check out uh, Field Seats. And Matt, thank you for joining us today here in the Smoke Pit. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. Hope everyone enjoyed that interview. Quick shout out to Grunt Style. If you haven't seen what they've been doing pushing the Honor Our Pact Act, uh, please check that out. They are going from city to city and asking lawmakers uh, why they have not uh, voiced more support for the Honor Our Pact Act, supporting our warfighters who are affected by toxic exposure, particularly burn pits, in partnership with Burn Pits 360 and John Stewart. So make sure you check that out and enjoy this next interview. Welcome to the Smoke Pit. Today joining us is Sam from Prep Medic. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. How about yourself? Doing fantastic. Can't complain. You know, I uh, living in a uh, fantastic country. Weather's great. You know, I just had a, a nice cup of coffee. So, you know, what, what can I really be that upset about? I'm right there with you. However, there are plenty of things that you can get upset about. <laughs> Recently, you were telling me a story about how a, a, a crew of yours uh, got into a little bit of trouble. And so for a little bit of backstory, uh, Sam here has been a long time in EMS and uh, he has a fantastic uh, YouTube channel, Prep Medic. He's on Instagram. Uh, make sure you go and check him out. But would you tell us a little bit about your, uh, about your, your background? Yeah, so I've been in EMS for uh, about 10 years, a little bit longer if you count uh, time as an EMT. Um, been on the ground up until about a year and a half ago where I switched to uh, the flight medicine side um, out here in Colorado. So on a helicopter flying through the Rocky Mountains. Um, great job, but uh, definitely comes uh, with some perils as, as <laughs> you alluded to. The slings um, and arrows of outrageous fortune. The sling. Yep, exactly. Uh, so, you know, helicopters are not uh, meant to fly is like what I like telling people. So any, any little thing can um, cause some issues and uh, not me, but one of our crews had kind of a crappy run in uh, a couple weeks back with a uh, patient they picked up in the Rocky mountains and she, they were a ways from care and, um, basically had stroke-like symptoms. Uh, they opted to fly for uh, expediency, get them to the hospital. You know, there's only so much we can do in the field to definitively rule in or out um, a, a stroke or any number of other uh, medical conditions that might be presenting. So they loaded them up in the helicopter and about mid-flight, uh, it became apparent that this was probably more of a psychiatric issue. Um, oh, wow. The, the patient came off the cot, um, started to try to unbuckle and started to try to kick the nose bubble out of a helicopter. I, I don't know if you're super familiar with the A-Star uh, airframe. It's a very, very small helicopter. Uh, we yeah. use it in the Rocky Mountains for like elevation um, and it's got really good tail rotor authority. So 
Uh, it also saves money, which is probably the hospital's main reason to keep it around. <laughs> um, but with that, the patient sits, uh, there's, there's two people behind the patient and they sit facing forward. And then the patient is between the left seat's legs, their head is right there. And then their feet are facing the front of the aircraft to the patient's right-hand side. They're kind of parallel to the pilot who has just a small half wall dividing the pilot from, um, the patient. And then above the patient, you have, uh, the control modules. So you have the fuel shutoff, you have the rotor brake, um, and then you also have the, uh, literally the on off switch for the helicopter. Um, I don't know who planned that out for a Hems aircraft, but you know, <laughs> it is yeah, what it is. Sometimes, uh, you know, when people are designing things, uh, they've, they've never used it before. So they, they don't really quite know, uh, what would be practical or not. And, you know, looking back at it at that point, it's like, oh, well, we've already made too many models to go back and change it. it exactly. And I, I think that really came into it here. So, uh, back to the story, the, the patient started to exhibit some combativeness started trying to kick the nose bubble, um, out of the aircraft, which uh, needless to say is a, a big deal. Um, and started to reach up and grab for things. And one of the first things you can grab there is, uh, the fuel shutoff. And if oh, the fuel wow. shutoff is switched, there's nothing you can do You're You have to do an auto rotation to the ground, which is a controlled fall. It's gliding a helicopter to the ground, which if you're in the cornfields of Iowa, um, probably you're, you're going to be fine. You've got a lot of place to land. If you're in the Rocky mountains where you've got big pine trees and cliff faces, uh, a little bit, a little bit different. Yeah. Not uh, quite a, not quite a sexy to, <laughs> to, not, to land. Not at all. Uh, definitely increases the pucker factor. So the saving grace here was that right before the call, um, we fly with a nurse and a medic and, uh, both fit the stereotype that day. And the nurse was a very petite, uh, female, very capable, not saying anything against her there, but very small. Um, and the medic was a relatively large guy. Um, and the nurse was originally sitting left seat. So right by the patient and the medic was sitting right seat, which is kind of out of arm's reach. And they're usually doing the drawing of meds and stuff. And, uh, the medic got this, uh, tingling feeling this intuition that something was not right and asked the nurse to switch sides. So when the patient started coming off the cot, he was able to kind of lay down over the patient, restrain the patient as best he could. Um, and the pilot declared an emergency and made an emergency landing, um, in the mountains, got down fine, ended up sedating the patient on the ground, uh, yeah. got to the hospital All, all's well that ends well. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. But, yeah, very close to disaster. Yeah, that. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine. You know, like you said, if if the if the uh, the providers had to, you know not switch positions, or if you had hit that switch, or wow, I mean that's that's crazy. And is it like is that something that you know in your experience with uh, with EMS and uh, being in the first responder community, is that kind of a one off example, or is that something that's that's fairly common for first responders, uh, particularly in the medical? Uh, half of it to have to deal with, um, you know, patients that exhibit those kind of traits and violence towards them. Yeah. You know, it's usually not, the consequences are usually not quite that severe. You know, it, it's in the helicopter industry. Um, 
we're not usually transporting the psychiatric patients, but it does happen. Um, sometimes you can't tell the difference between a medical issue and a psychiatric case, but on the ground, uh, a patient like that, uh, somebody that's combating getting assaulted. I mean, that's, that's, um, kind of an everyday reality for, uh, most paramedics and EMTs, especially working high call volume, urban environments, um, that getting assaulted and having combative patients is, is a very, very normal thing. I would not have really thought about it that way. I, you know, I, I don't do that for a living. So it's kind of one of those things that I guess, uh, most of us take for granted. So, um, you know, is, is this something that you guys are trained to deal with? Is this something that like the insurance covers, uh, you know, or have there been any crazy examples? I know I just shotgunned a couple questions at you, but you know, um, you know, what are your thoughts about this? The training in this realm is, uh, lackluster. Um, you know, I, I've gone through a little bit more than a lot. I was, uh, in law enforcement for a period of time on a SWAT team, and now I work as a tactical medic. So I get a little bit more than a standard street medic. I'm not an MMA fighter. I'm not, um, crazy big or strong and I can still get my ass kicked, but, um, I get some, a lot of people have had little to none, you know, you might do a computer module that talks about de-escalation you know, talks about blading your stance or not letting the patient between you and your exit, but really it, it's fluff. Um, actual meaningful hands-on training is a rarity in my experience. And maybe somebody's outfit is different, but to really train to defend yourself effectively, I think that's not something you can take a computer module. It's not something you can go to, you know, a, a gym with some mats on it and do a one day, uh, uh, combatives course or something and really expect to be competent, something you have to regularly train in, um, which is something I just don't think a lot of medical providers, not just EMS, uh, really has access to. And so uh, is this something that, you, that you've seen people or uh, be injured over, or is this something that has uh, happened to you personally? Yeah. So in my 10 years of EMS, I can recall probably six or seven knocked on drag out fights um, that have occurred. And then like your, your assaults that you're almost desensitized to that you don't even consider assaults until, uh, you get an outside perspective. I mean, those, those are a weekly occurrence when you're in a high call volume urban environment, you know, um, I can remember a couple, you know, I think one of the first ones that happened to me was, uh, we had a psych patient and, um, she was cooperative. So, a cooperative psych patient, we're not going to take them. We're not going to strap them to the cot. Like we're going to ask them to walk, you know, to the ambulance. We're going to sit them in the captain's seat, put a seatbelt on them, um, all of that. And we're going to try to just be really kind, friendly, keep them, uh, compliant to go get the help that they need, because that's what we're there for. Um, but we, we don't escalate that until they escalate. We're always a reactionary, uh, reactionary providers, which is in many aspects, a really good thing. Um, in this case, she was uh, really uh, compliant until we got to the hospital and she realized that she was going to the behavioral health facility. So we put her in a wheelchair and then she tried to start getting up and walk out. And she was a clear demonstrable danger to herself um, at that point. So we have a legal precedence to keep her. Uh, so I went down and I just clamped her one arm to the arm of a wheelchair and my partner clamped her arm to the other uh, side of the wheelchair and she came down um, and bit pretty hard uh, down onto my hand, uh, drew a little bit of blood. Um, not like, and, and that was something that 
I made a report about it because she was in her right mind, even though she was having a psychiatric crisis. Um, and at the end of the day, the case was thrown out um, by the judge. So uh, nothing really happened there. Um, you know, and, and, as and that's as not even the knockdown drag out fights that you were talking about. No, that was just like the first kind of like, oh crap, that happened. And really, uh, I was not talked out of it, but the, the experience was really, uh, downplayed by coworkers and people that have been in the industry for a long time. They're like, yeah, that happens. I remember the first time I was bit and that's kind of been the theme of EMS, uh, in my career. And I, I love it, but. I love the career, uh, but yeah. <laughs> you, not, I don't like to say if you bit. like being bit, that's a, that's a different part of the podcast, very different part of the podcast, probably not appropriate here. <laughs> uh, so, you know, and then from there, you know, it gets complicated because you have people that are trying to assault you and hurt you, Yeah, but you also have medical patients. So the first knockdown drag out I ever had was a, a postictal patient. So they had a seizure. And after a uh, seizure, you can go into this state where you're kind of your body's resetting. So uh, confusion, lethargy is common, but not in this case, um, you know, just they're, they're really out of it and they don't know what's going on. And this patient had a seizure, big guy. Um, and his wife was you know, like, Hey, yes, we want to take him to the hospital. Yeah. You should get, go get checked out. So he was doing fine on the cot. And then we got him in the ambulance firefighters cleared law enforcement cleared and came off the cot um and pinned my partner to the wall uh by the throat and was trying to choke him so came from behind him and tried to get him down onto the cot and just what ensued was a a fight and we basically had to hold him down uh long enough for one of us to get on our radio and hit the emergency button on that to get people to come back to us because we couldn't there were only four hands there we couldn't restrain a man, get medications out to, to sedate him. There was really no warning of it. Um, and that's like, I don't blame that guy. Um, I don't blame him for that. Like that was, he wasn't in his right mind. It was a legitimate medical issue. Um, but that doesn't mean the danger wasn't, uh, real. Like it doesn't mean yeah. that he wasn't trying to hurt us in that moment. Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. Um, you know, sometimes you might have people who are, I'm assuming, are intending to, to hurt you. And uh, from what I was uh, researching is that uh, only in select places are, are there extra legal ramifications for assaulting a, uh, a paramedic or an EMT. Yeah. And like there's there's been several cases of knives drawn on us. Um, usually it's somebody that's drunk or impaired in some way. And you can usually predict it. I've been able to predict it in, in my experience and go hands-on before something actually is brandished against you, but, um, definitely had those moments. And what I have learned in my career is that even though where I came from in Iowa, it's, I, I believe it's a felony in the state, um, to assault a paramedic, uh, but it's not like that happens. everywhere. It, it's not like that everywhere. And getting those charges to stick is very hard. Um, I've found that prosecutors uh, don't do a great job and it's really prone to be thrown out in court um, because the person argues, oh, I was drunk. I wasn't, I didn't try to, um, whatever it is. They argue I, the intent. I, they argue intent and I'm not a legal expert, um, but I know that the cases that I have 
tried to pursue charges on, I've never had one stick um, for it. And, you know, that that's frustrating. It's to the point where I don't really report anything anymore. And so that, uh, that obviously can't be the, the right answer for, for us as a nation. But if you were to say with your experience, uh, what can be done at the, um, at the responder level? And then what can be done at the either city, county, state, federal level to try to mitigate this kind of stuff from happening? Because I can, I can only imagine, you know, like, yeah, obviously it sucks if somebody takes a punch at you, but you know, if somebody starts trying to stab at you with a needle or, you know, pulls a, a knife or something on you, like, you know, that, that could have long lasting uh, effects or even, you know, cause death. So from the provider level and then from the governmental level, what, what do you think should be done? So it's kind of multifaceted and that opens up a, a can of worms of things I'm kind of passionate about. Uh, we're experiencing right now in my system, and I, I can't guarantee this is everywhere, but uh, law enforcement is very afraid to help us without a very distinct crime having already been committed. So when I started my career, it used to be you'd ask law enforcement, like, hey, this person's a danger to themselves. They're a danger to me. Um, can you just help me restrain him or them, she, whatever, and take him to the hospital? Law enforcement would be really amenable to that because they're trained in it. They're trained in combatives. They're trained in um you know, restraint, safe restraint. They can restrain people um, very well, very efficiently. And that is not just a benefit to me as a provider, but it's a benefit to the patient who needs to be seen um, for whatever it is. And now law enforcement has been refusing to go hands-on with anybody that's not strictly under arrest. So the, you know, suicidal patient, uh, the super drunk patient that really doesn't have the capacity to sign a refusal of care. They don't have the decision-making capacity that in my medical system, my medical director is okay with me having them sign a piece of paper and saying they don't want to go. So I'm being directed to take this patient to the hospital by a physician. um, And there's a legal precedence for that. But law enforcement is really afraid to go hands-on because of the number of times they've been uh, uh, prosecuted in the last couple of years for doing just that. Um, so it it creates this really muddy water, um, for us where I can't let them go. And I might be held liable if I let this patient go. And let's say I let them go and they jump off the bridge right next to the ambulance and die. Now they say, well, why, why did you let them go? You weren't supposed to do. Um, but I can't take them in without going hands-on and restraining them. And it's just me and my partner or the fire department. And we're trained, but we're not, we're not trained to go hands-on like the law enforcement aspect is. So yeah, you didn't spend years getting your paramedic certification to, you know, have your primary be focused being, you know, arm, arm bar takedowns and, you know, wrist lock come alongs and stuff. Yeah. And for your listeners that might not be super familiar with like kind of the precedents for going hands-on in, in the medical field, we really only do it um, if they're a danger to themselves or others. So if I have something articulate or yeah, can't talk, um, if I have something where I can look at and say, uh, this patient, if I let them go, they've threatened suicide, they have a method. 
I can't let that person go. Like I, I can go hands-on restrain that person and take them to the hospital because they're having a psychiatric emergency, not as a punishment, but to get them care, you know, same with, if somebody's expressing like homicidal ideations, we can't just let that person, uh, go. So that's kind of where it comes from. And like you said, we just, we don't have the training. We don't do it all the time. Like police officers are usually arresting people relatively regularly. So they have those experiences. They've gone through that training. They have continuing ed, and we, we just don't in this field. And so from the, uh, the, the provider, uh, aspect, uh, what, what things do you think that, um, you know, the average EMT or paramedic that's listening to this podcast right now, what, what, what kind of things would you recommend for them to be able to prepare themselves for if they come across a situation like that? I would say probably, and, and I, I don't follow my own advice here. Um, but I think the most effective thing you can do, uh, that also has other benefits would probably join a mixed martial arts gym, um, something that deals with grappling. Um, because if you are trained, uh, in a lot of those restraint holds, um, you can do it very safely, um, for patients. And that's the key. We don't want to hurt anybody, but we want to be able to defend ourselves and get patients the care they need. So some kind of mixed martial arts, even something that has a, uh, uh, tie to public safety. Maybe they've modified it for your career. I think those are great. I think the crux is, is that a lot of us like going for the one-time classes, you know, that one combatives class, that one hands-on class. Um, and if you do it once, it's just not enough. So join a gym that you enjoy going to and go regularly and train. I, I really think that's the only sustainable thing, uh, in this case. Um, you know, I, I think verbal, de-escalation has a realm, has a pretty big role to play. Uh, but you are going to experience times where that fails, uh, in this career, in my experience. Yeah. And, uh, in our pre-interview, uh, you know, you had mentioned about the importance of, uh, recognizing, uh, body language and stuff like that. So, you know, if there's a curriculum in that, or even just going on Reddit or YouTube and just watching, you know, fight videos. And, you know, if, if you come across a video where, you know, two individuals are standing outside of a bar and, you know, they're, they're exchanging pleasantries. Generally you'll notice a, a shift of body language, you know, maybe an adjustment of the feet, a cocking back of the shoulder, a lowering of the weight. Not, a, not every time, obviously, but you know, when somebody's swinging with intent, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll see the, the shift in, in body language. So, you know, uh, from being in the military perspective, when we dealt with a lot of, um, you know, when we were detaining people or searching people through checkpoints, you know, you never know if, you know, you're just searching somebody and they're going through a checkpoint and you're going to let them on their, their merry way, but they're there because they want to punch you in the face. And so just kind of like being able to at least have a, a little bit of awareness uh, as to what the, the body language is saying and uh, also not getting, I guess, uh, as you mentioned uh, before, not getting too tunnel vision and, you know, worrying about too much about, you know, what the, uh, the, the medical aspect of the call would be, but also making sure that you're taking the time to keep yourself safe. Yeah, absolutely. And just when you feel like something is off, like every time I've had something bad happen to me, I felt like something was off. Um, we were transporting a, uh, homeless individual. This was only a couple months ago. Um, and they were, they were compliant, but they were just acting weird and at loading an ambulance cot, you know, you're behind it. And, you know, next thing I know, I had a boot in my face from getting kicked. And I had like, you look back at it and you're like, I didn't feel good about this the whole time. 
And usually like in my experience, that's your subconscious telling you like something's wrong. Um, and it doesn't mean you have to, you know, go scorched earth policy, put everybody in restraints, but, you know, just making sure not positioning yourself right at the bottom of the cot, having a second rider in the back of the ambulance, um, you know, doing a big thing in one of the cities around us is, uh, doing a huge physical assessment, um, on the patient before they get in the ambulance, which is a little more than a search, um, you know, to make sure that they're not coming in with, you know, guns, knives, something they can use against you. So I, I think all of that plays into it quite a lot. And so from the uh, government level, you know, uh, so what kind of things would you like to see either uh, the company that is, you know, uh, providing the, the EMS service or maybe some sort of state, county, um, city or federal mandate uh, requirement like uh, what, what, what kind of changes would you like to see from the, the, the policy uh, standpoint? Uh, policy standpoint. So some of it's hard for me to say um, because number one, like, I don't think like the seizure example I gave you, like, I don't think that person needs to be charged uh, with anything criminal. I, I think we were just in the wrong place, wrong time with the wrong medical issue, but somebody that's, you know, aiming a kick at your face, drawing a knife. I would like to see some of that, not being normalized so much by the agency level, you know, it's kind of looked at as like, yeah, that's part of the job that happens. It happens weekly, uh, at least. And from a policy perspective, just being able to follow through on these charges, uh, understand like having a pretty extensive, um, uh, prosecutor capabilities for these, you know, not allowing some of these excuses to go through. I think it needs to be a felony, no matter where you are, an assault on a healthcare provider. And that's uh, paramedics, that's nursing, that's physicians. Um, I, I think it just needs to be made a felony and that needs to be made public knowledge to make people think twice about doing it. Beyond that, I, I really don't know. Do you think that there, um, there's any cause to be made that, um, and this is just playing devil's advocate, because uh, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you know, the, the discussion is to, you know, how do we get these guys and gals, uh, you know, home safe every every day after the shift? And so, you know, we, we've seen uh, particularly in certain regions that have a surplus of um, people without uh, permanent housing is that sometimes they'll commit a small infraction uh, with the knowledge that they'll you know get somewhere to sleep. They'll get a meal. They'll get immediate medical attention. And, you know, if it is a small infraction, then, you know, they won't be in there too long. And then you know, they'll, they'll be back on their way again. Now, do you think that if you were to make laws and increase the enforcement of those things, do you think that, um, that certain individuals might see that as a soft target versus where if they could, were to commit assault, an assault against like a police officer, you know, they might get tased or pepper sprayed or, you know, taken out harder. Like, so let's just play devil's advocate here. You know, how do, how do we enforce this without putting a target on, you know, the, the first responders who generally, you know, just show up with their, uh, their trauma shears. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that's so tough because realistically, at least in the systems I've worked in a large portion of the assaults have come from the homeless population. That's not saying every homeless person is violent, um, transport many pleasant ones, but they generally have less to lose. Kind of like you said, like, okay, they get three square meals a day and a roof over their head. Like I, I can't really blame them for wanting to be in jail periodically, but with that, you know, I, I've never been an advocate for 
you know, like uh, paramedics carrying lethal weapons. Um, yeah. You know, there's there. That's just not. I'm not. It probably gets pretty political. Um, you know, and I'm pretty in support of the two way until it comes to healthcare providers being armed. I think it just kind of damages some of the trust you have with your patients. But you know, when you come to like less lethal opportunities, like maybe carrying some pepper spray or having the ability for a taser, I I could definitely see that being beneficial um, in those situations. So, you know, I, there's nuance there for sure. Um, you know, anytime you have a firearm on you, you're bringing a gun to a fight. So some of these knockdown drag outs I have might've become, uh, lethal at that point, not saying, uh, yeah, obviously this is all hypothetical, but yeah, I, I see what you you're, know, no, I'll, it, I'll jump it, in and I'll save you from, from my uh, opinion. <laughs> yeah, I, I can, I can see how, if you already have somebody who's being very combative, trying to literally cut the fuel source to a helicopter that they're in above the Rocky mountains, if they see an adjutant, like a firearm on someone's hip or a thigh holster, like that might make the situation worse. And I, I think so, uh, you know, and I think it's just going to be really le- like legally muddy. I think is how I'd say that oh, for you know, sure you, you were called to help somebody and now, now you shot them. Um, and on top of that, like ambulances, you know, can be expensive as it is. Like imagine if they had to increase the insurance premium because <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Everything is nuanced. Um, but what do you think about, uh, the, the stories that we've been seeing that some counties have been buying uh, body armor for their, uh, their EMTs and paramedics huge advocate for body armor, um, in these situations and, uh, not just like your standard level three body armor. I think you need to have some stab, uh, protection, uh, and some slash protection there as well, but it's a relatively cheap thing you can do. Um, you know, that's going to decrease the impact of any number of things, you know, even though what it's, do you recommend? For, uh, you know, I, I think it's different for every agency, whether you want to wear them, you know, outside of your uniform, or if you want to wear them inside, I'm, I personally like the concealed armor for your standard street paramedic. It's just less threatening. Um, it's not showing people where your soft points are in that case, they might take a stab at you in the chest thinking that you're, that's where you're vulnerable. But if they saw body armor, maybe they'd aim somewhere else. Um, but if you want something external to hold some extra gear, uh, I, behind me, I've got a, um, safe life defense vest that makes a pretty inexpensive uh, piece of body armor. That's not super custom fit. You can do for external. Um, and then there's a lot of different internal manufacturers. I don't, I can't list them off the top of my head, but that, that have really good uh, protection ratings for, for these jobs. So I, I think that's, a, a, I smell a new YouTube video then, <laughs> right? I, I think so. If you haven't um, done one already. Uh, yeah. I think that might be a, a good future episode. Yeah. You know, there, there's a bunch of stuff you can do, uh, in those cases. Um, I'm not advocating for, you know, full SWAT get up plate carriers. You know, I've definitely seen some volunteer agencies roll into the ER looking like they're, uh, heading to Ukraine, but, um, you know, some, just something to protect staff in that and, you know, talking it, talking it out, I think the concealed armor is probably a better option from most providers. Yeah, so we um, uh, you mentioned that I'll, I'll do a bit of a shameless plug. We recently got back from the Ukraine and Poland border, where we met with a uh, a group of American veterans and paramedics who have been running medical supplies in and out of uh, Ukraine, and uh, we have some great interviews from them on our website, popsmokemedia.com. So go check that out. Shameless plug since you brought it up, uh, but yeah, it's kind of funny because 
know, even those guys, they, they weren't even really wearing armor. They were just kind of like low key contractor, casual kind of, kind of vibes. And yeah, that, that definitely, uh, leads into the, the militarization of, uh, first responders in America, which I did a great debate with, um, a gentleman named Alexander Pfeffer on the Foxhole podcast, where we took the issue of, um, local agencies getting surplus military equipment and we had to flip a coin to decide whether you were pro or for that. And so, you know, it wasn't our personal beliefs, just, you know, just trying to argue the facts. So that's the, uh, the, uh, the Foxhole podcast also available on everything. So now that those shameless plugs are done, let's go ahead and shamelessly plug your channels. Where can people find you on social? Uh, you can find me. My primary platform is YouTube. It's just prep medic. Um, and then I'm also on, uh, Instagram. It's prep underscore medic. Don't know who's got the prep medic one, but it's not me. Yeah. I went to find a pop smoke media, uh, make that a Reddit thread today. And somebody already had it and has zero members and zero posts. I was like, really, man, really? They're waiting to sell it to you for about $10,000. Oh, they could sell it to me for 10,000 dicks. <laughs> uh, we almost made it to the end. Almost, almost a clean episode. So close. <laughs> so close. Well, hey, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on, um, come here in the smoke pit and you know, share your experience um, with this um, with this matter. Is, is there anything that you think we missed? Anything you'd like to leave the listeners with? Yeah, I think... The last thing I'd want to uh, just touch on briefly, and it's a big topic, is we recently had, um, well, I guess it was like 2017, 2018, but the death of Elijah McLean out here in Colorado. And that resulted in some really harmful um, legislation in the state where they have outlawed the use of a very safe sedative ketamine. Now that case had a lot of bad things happen to it. And McLean tragically lost his life, but uh, we're seeing a lot of legislation in the name of um, activism. We're seeing a lot of legislation uh, in the name of um, God, I'm having a stroke. Might Uh want to cut this part out. (laughs) Um, activism. Activism. That's it. There it uh, is. In the name of activism, can you smile for me real quick? Both your cheeks are lifting. Okay, <laughs> hands no. are out. We're fine. Yeah, we're we're um, good. <laughs> and you know, I I think it's just so harmful that we're we're taking things away. We're taking tools away from providers. We're making medical providers af- afraid to do their jobs. We're making police officers afraid to do their jobs. Um, and I I definitely think there's probably a middle ground we can find. But right now you know, in that helicopter case, the best thing we could have done is give that patient ketamine. Um, and because of that case, because of medical providers being charged, uh, after they gave that medication and marginally overdosed him, uh, on that medication, we're afraid to do it. And there's laws that say we can't do it. We now have a law in the state of Colorado that says we can't talk to law enforcement officers about sedation, uh, on scene. We can't talk to them about ketamine. They can't recommend ketamine to us um, or it's a misdemeanor. So there's just a lot of harmful stuff going on and a lot of fear within our community law enforcement of actually treating these patients the way they need to be treated um, in these situations. So I guess I'd say think before you vote um, and really like look, look to people that actually are in the field doing this job before you decide to implement something like that. Yeah, and I, I guess that's a uh, also a, a good piece of advice to to anyone who's currently about to graduate, you know, a, a paramedic program or an EMT program, that you know, check the 
check the laws before you before you move somewhere because they might change county to county. You know, you might have gone to school here, you move five minutes down the road, get a job that's at a station house ten minutes down the road, and you might be in a different county. Yep, exactly. And you know, there are big consequences now. Uh, criminal charges are becoming less and less uncommon for medical mistakes. So um, just be careful, be cautious, um, and remove yourself from situations before they evolve. Now that is fantastic advice. And it, uh, it just seems unfortunate that merely having a discussion about um, a potential form of treatment that is legal in many other places will act all, uh, might end up in more legal ramifications than if a, if a patient actually bit you. Absolutely. Kind of crazy. Well, uh, you know, it, it seems like with the, uh, the cost of, uh, some of these medical bills, they could afford to pay you guys more. <laughs> I, you know what? I would love that. Uh, you know, but I don't know if that's in the cards just, just yet. Yeah, not just yet, but, uh, you know, hopefully that, that is something that, uh, there can be done. So, uh, you know, if there's anyone listening who wants to get with me to, to send some, uh, very strongly worded messages to our elected leaders, uh, shoot me a message <laughs> because uh, at the end of the day, it's all about numbers. I've had uh, political um, part uh, like uh, congressional staffers be like, Hey man, like we feel you. We understand this, this issue sucks for our vets, but nobody in our district has called us about this. So it's like, we have to pay attention to the issues that people are calling us about because at the end of the day, like reelection is everything, you know? Absolutely. And so, you know, if, if you, if you want to make a change, you know, you have to take the two seconds to, you know, call, email, write, go visit your, your congressional, uh, representatives, you know, in the house and the Senate. And, you know, if you don't do that, then, you know, things aren't likely to change because there are people out there that have nothing better to do than to, you know, uh, complain about the orphan puppies in Uganda. So, uh, you know, that's where, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's where the, the, the time and effort gets spent by the staffers is on the stuff that people are talking about. So if you want stuff change, uh, you know, you got to make some noise. Yeah. And there's, I, I think everybody's looking for the easy way out with a lot of these really complex issues, you know, um, looking at racial equality and a lot of the issues that have come up in the last couple of years, you know, ketamine was the easy target. It's a completely inaccurate target, but it makes people feel good. So you have a couple activists, I said the name without an issue there, um, you know, that think that that's the big culprit um, and that we need to just ban that. And then a politician sees that and they say, well, hey, this is really easy for me to do. Um, I can just get rid of this, you know, might hurt a couple first responders, but who really cares? Uh, it's going to get me reelected. And, you know, those are the issues that are focused on, but it's the easy, it's the easy way out. It's not really addressing the root cause of any of the issues that they actually care about. Well, I think that there's no better note uh, in the show than on that. So thank you very much for, uh, for joining us. Yeah. Thank you. Fair winds following seas. We'll see you next time here in the smoke pit.